You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of February 2023 on Monocle 24, The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... I have come here and stand before you on behalf of the brave, on behalf of our conscripts who are being trained now, including here in Britain. Thank you, Britain. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky addresses the Houses of Parliament in Britain on his way to meet European leaders. We'll unpack his whirlwind diplomatic tour. Crisis hit South Africans will hear from their president tonight in his State of the Nation speech. But has the country reached the depths of no return? Then to Tokyo. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson. Today we'll be unpacking the growing scandal involving bid rigging and bribery at Tokyo's 2020 Olympics. More from Japan later. In Switzerland, Covid deniers plan a school offering values-free education. We'll unmask what a gymnasium without ideology really means. We'll ruffle through the front pages and hear some aviation news, including the revelation that Russia may have supplied the weapon that downed MH17, before immersing ourselves in the calm of the Albion Waves exhibition. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The UK Foreign Secretary says he's working with the UN's top humanitarian official to find ways of getting aid into northwestern Syria. North Korea has showcased its biggest display of long-range missiles during a nighttime parade. And the Australian government will remove Chinese-made surveillance cameras from defence sites. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday, President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine visited Britain for the first time since Russia's invasion of his country. He addressed the joint Houses of Parliament, met the King and visited Ukrainian troops who were being trained by British forces. Throughout his trip, the Ukrainian thanked the UK for its robust military support and drew comparisons to Winston Churchill. Take a listen. London has stood with Kiev since day one. From the first seconds and minutes of the full-scale war, Great Britain, you extended your helping hand when the world had not yet come to understand how to react. Boris, you got others united when it seemed absolutely, absolutely impossible. Thank you. Well, listening to that is Aliona Klivko, who's a political consultant and a former local Ukrainian MP, and John Everard, former British ambassador to North Korea, Belarus and Uruguay. And they both join me now in the studio. Many thanks for coming in. Aliona, you were in Parliament Square as your president made his way to address lawmakers. Can you describe the scene and what it meant for you personally? I think it was one of the most surreal moments of my life, um, being in the UK, Um, In London, the country that 
has maybe five years ago even known very little of Ukraine, especially the people of the United Kingdom. And then being in the capital of it, next to one of the most prominent historical buildings that started democracy, that was fighting for democracy, and having my president of Ukraine, of Eastern European state that's fighting for its self-identification and survival, come into the parliament. And I saw the cortege driving in, and uh, there was a Ukrainian anthem blasting on max on the parliament square. And it just felt like London was about Ukraine yesterday. It was an extremely emotional moment for me. And you actually met him. I have. I have met him very briefly um, as some of the friends at the embassy that I bumped into. And, um, you know, a handshake with the president at the time of war. It's um, similarly, I didn't get a hug like the BBC journalist yesterday, but that handshake did mean a lot. And Aliana, I know that you were thinking about your brother at that point. Um, I was indeed, because coincidentally, that's exactly five minutes before that. Uh, that he called me um, saying that he was actually being sent to Bakhmut yesterday, that they were departing. And um, he was giving me all sorts of instructions and, you know, what to do in case. And if I don't hear back or if I don't hear back within three days, how do I take care of his wife and his little daughter? And um, um, I promise I'm not going to cry on air, but um, that is the moment that we all Ukrainians go through now. Well... Thank you very much for that. John, this obviously brings it home. I mean, this war is not something that's being fought miles away. It's right here. It's in the studio. It's in the tears on our faces. What did Zelensky say in Westminster Hall? It was a barnstorming performance. What did he say? He called for support for freedom. He praised the UK, thanked the UK for its staunch stand with Ukraine uh, from from day one, as we just heard him say. Uh, And at the end, in a wonderful bit of political theatre, he presented the Speaker of the House of Commons with the actual helmet of a Ukrainian fighter ace, on which was written, we have freedom, give us wings to protect it, and came out with a call for the supply of modern fighter jets. Thank you for the tea last time I came in 2019, he said, and thank you in advance for the powerful British aircraft. Mm. Everybody clapped. And it would seem that that even though that hasn't been completely signed off, the photo op with Rishi Sunak and Zelensky both wearing fighter helmets, this gift of a fighter helmet, I mean, it's very difficult to row back from a photo like that and not give jets. Oh, it can be done. Uh, the, I mean, I thought that the, uh, the announcement that the UK will provide fighter jet training to the Ukrainians was a masterstroke. That is, it's inexpensive. It's difficult for Ukrainians to get because they don't have the, the, the equipment, whereas we in the UK do. Uh, the big question is which fighter jets you're going to train them on. Uh, what they really want are the old tornadoes, uh, the last generation of, of Europe's uh, interceptor a fighter. Uh, The trouble is that the UK... Uh, last flew a tornado in 2019. I, I don't know whether they've got any in stock. They've probably actually sold them all off by now. And I think there's going to be a deep reluctance to give Ukraine the typhoon, uh, which is the, the upgrade, uh, not because there's any great political problem with this, although there would be a sudden amount of tooth sucking, but because it's such a complex aircraft. And, you know, there's real risk that by the time you train somebody to fly a typhoon, the war's over. Mm. Whereas a tornado, you can actually 
train somebody up in a reasonable timescale and they could actually be brought into action. Now, in that speech, we heard his shout out to Boris Johnson. Uh, and Aliona, I wonder, I know that there was some concern within the Ukrainian community that that once Johnson had gone, that British support would, would disappear. Uh, how has it been under Sunak? I think we definitely got our confirmation that the UK stands with Ukraine. Obviously, no one um, expected that the UK would all of a sudden turn around, but um, every new leader is a new strategy, so you never really know where he's going to take his country. I think this visit definitely showcased that the UK is still uh, right by Ukraine's side, as it was from the very beginning, that it is one of the closest allies, because similarly to the Jets, uh, the UK was the first country to provide the battle tanks, and that triggered the rest of Europe and the US eventually as well to send tanks to Ukraine. And I think we will see a similar tendency uh, with uh, the jets. Mm. Uh, the Ukrainian pilots have been training in Poland on to fly F-35s, I believe, if not F-16s, because those are um, off the chart yet. But it was there was an interesting statement that Zelensky made yesterday during the press conference with Rishi Sunak when he said that the achievement is really close, but he understood that there needs to be a one united decision made by the allies. And so that's why he's going off to corroborate that support within the 27 members of the EU to get on board with that decision and really provide Ukraine with with fighter jets. And I do believe, just looking from the point of view of communications, if President made this historical visit uh, to the UK, he spoke to the parliament, to both houses, and mentioned the king as as the uh, jet pilot, then surely there must be 90% Um, assurance that Ukraine is getting those jets. Mm. I mean, John, as a former diplomat, how useful are trips like these? We know that Zelensky then went off to to Paris to meet Macron and also Olaf Schultz. He's uh, supposed to be in in Brussels today for the the EU summit. We don't actually have complete confirmation he's going to do that. But I wonder if this benefits the host more than the visiting head of state. What will Zelensky be hoping to achieve over and above what he can do virtually? I think it benefits both in considerable measure. I mean, the benefits to the British government are clear. Uh, just for once, something goes right for Rishi Sunak, a rare change. Uh, it was very well hosted, you know, tremendous public support. Uh, Parliament Square was full. Everybody wanted to come out and see Zelensky. Uh, but for Zelensky, firstly, uh, he he presents himself as a key member of the West, of uh, uh, deeply uh, of a community of nations with deeply shared values, Democrats, those in favour of freedom. Um, This is very important national positioning. Secondly, of course, it gives him the chance to make his pitch for more and better weapons, which he's done to great effect. Mm. Uh, uh, The EU summit kicks off today, Aliona, as we know. Uh, What's Kiev's ambition for the outcome of the meeting? So I believe, first of all, Zelensky is sincerely there to say thank you, as he was in the UK as he was in the U.S. back in December, because all of the foreign leaders have paid their visits to Kiev in the time of war, really risking their lives and and going to bomb shelters when needed. So Zelensky did feel like he needs to return that favor and visit the country, albeit very briefly. Um, So the EU would be the natural third choice, as the European Commission was so supportive of Ukraine. Um, Both France and Germany have a a difficult history in, in 
uh, trying to resolve this problem and dealing with the war in Ukraine because they kept going back and forth. But I think it's important to keep the allies on our side and talk to them. And the signals were um, quite impressive last night, actually, during the joint press conference when Scholz has reiterated that Ukraine belongs in Europe. That is something that you wouldn't expect to hear from an extremely pragmatic Germany. So that definitely gives us much hope. It belongs in Europe, but it's not necessarily going to be an EU member. So, John, we know that the EU's warned there's no fast track to accession, that it's a complex process that takes years. I wonder if there's also a reluctance to bring in a large eastern country, which would alter the balance of power in the bloc. I don't think that is so much the issue. It's more straightforward uh, adherence to the accession criteria, uh, which have been laid out to Ukraine in in great detail, and which Ukraine can do over time, but it won't be immediate. Uh, It's more a concern, I think, that the playing field is kept level and that other accession countries don't feel that they have been simply elbowed aside just to let Ukraine through. Finally, Eliana, Russian forces have been blasting areas of eastern Ukraine with more artillery bombardments. Uh, as you say, your brother is on his way to Bakhmut, and I wonder, as are many, many hundreds more, and I wonder if this is part of a new push to mark that one-year anniversary of the invasion and what the best predictions of what will happen next militarily are. I think we're about to endure an extremely bloody and and intense battle in the east of Ukraine. Uh, Sadly, the terrain encounters a very close quarter fighting. So uh, I remember when President Zelensky visited the U.S., he said uh, that he's just come back from Bakhmut, actually, and he was saying that people are fist fighting. It's it's that kind of war. You can't really rely too much on uh, long range weapons to make the difference. Uh, and, and artillery certainly does make the difference, but it still entails many soldiers going into that close battle. And that's one of the things that my brother was sharing with me yesterday, that he was training uh, his unit for the last two, three weeks in that uh, what's called uh, CQB, close quarter battles, tactics. Um, So I think we are to expect um, a very intense fighting. Um, And one of the reasons why we all rally for the world's support is to give us as much weapons as we can so we can spare as much lives as possible. Eliana Klivko and John Everard, thank you both very much for joining us. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will deliver the State of the Nation Address, or SONA, tonight. It comes as at a significant time, 15 months before the election, as the country is beset by the ongoing electricity crisis, rampant crime, struggling consumers and rising unemployment. Well, I'm joined now by Nwabisa Makunga, who's a journalist and the editor of The Sowetan, a national daily publication in Johannesburg. Uh, Nwabisa, welcome back to the show. How important is this address? Hi, Georgina. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely important. Um, it is, and I would like to argue that it is probably President Sir Ramaphosa's uh, uh, most difficult uh, speech to deliver. And, and that's really in the context of the things you've mentioned. And it's in the context of the fact that, you know, the, the, the country uh, is really facing, you know, load, load shedding, what we call load shedding, essentially blackouts. Um, which have really brought our econ- economy to the brink of collapse. There's so much, uh, you know, that is going on just as far as 
the implications of that. I mean, just at the other day, South Africa's top CEOs, uh, you know, of, of big companies uh, wrote a letter to the president essentially saying to him that something must be done about this. We are really struggling. And they were putting some 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 suggestions across as far as, you know, how to actually avert, uh, you know, a much bigger crisis. So it, it most certainly is, uh, um, you know, probably his toughest uh, one to address tonight. Uh, and how, how, how is he going to address the crisis? What's been done? So, so the couple of things. So, in, at the moment, um, I think you know a lot of people will tell you that the president is really trying to pacify us. At the moment, um, you know, as far as the the blackouts are concerned, uh, you know, the, we are essentially needing more money for uh, for diesel in order to burn our gas turbines just to keep the lights on. Um, but on a more structural and more long term, uh, you know, view, there's a couple of things that the president has put forward, um, you know, as you know, which really have to do with regulations and uh, or, or cutting red tape in order for us uh, to be able to get more uh, power onto our grid. The, the the frustration, though, I think, is that people are saying we can see some of the plans. We're not necessarily convinced by them, but we can see some of the plans. But what we are not seeing is really implementation. So it's your entire government, your entire cabinet um, and all its structures actually, you know, getting up and doing what needs to be done. There's a lot of talk happening in South Africa at the moment, very little action happening. Uh, And in terms of the entire cabinet, he's also contemplating a, a reshuffle. Absolutely. So he has to um, because of, you know, there are certain there are reasons why he has to, as far as, you know, uh, there's an appointment, for example, he has to make with one of the transport, mini- with the transport minister uh, who has now become the ANC general secretary. And obviously, by law, he can't hold both positions. Um, there is talk of the deputy president, uh, you know, resigning. It really all stems from the the, the election of the of the of the leaders of the ANC in December. So he has to do it, right? But the, the question is, who is he going to put, um, you know, in, in his cabinet, not just in filling those positions, but essentially to change it around to make it a far more functional, uh, we would hope, uh, you know, cabinet than than what it, what it is now. There's a lot of politics, obviously, for him to consider, uh, which are, yes, you know, we would hope that the country's needs come first, but also there are a lot of politics, uh, you know, as far as the ANC and, and kind of pacifying all the other role players that, that helped him to really remain in power. Uh, And of course, the elections slated for next year. Polls show that the ANC and Ramaphosa personally are slipping in popularity. What are the latest figures? I can't tell you the latest figures right now, but I know, um, you know, polls, including the ANC's internal polls, uh, really place it below 50%. So it does say, although it will probably walk away with the, the, you know, still the biggest chunk of the the vote, but it will, you know, slip uh, uh, below 50%, which essentially means that, you know, most of us will probably, uh, you know, go into a coalition government. So um, I think that's that's what, I mean, the ANC is quite worried about that. Um, They won't say publicly, but when you speak to, you know, members of the party, leaders of the party uh, privately, they are really, you know, considering how it is that they may have to deal with the whole issue of a coalition government. But at the moment, it's not looking good for them. Um, And I think many South Africans are really wondering, you know, post an election, what our government is going to look like, but also how we're going to handle, should there be such a transition? And with with the election in mind, how powerful is COSATU, the Confederation of Trades Unions? Kosato uh, does remain, although it, you know, uh, probably far less so than say ten years ago, but it does remain uh, a significant player because it does, you know, lead. Uh, I mean, it's a labor federation. It does lead quite a chunk of uh, the labor force in South Africa. Um, but, but it, but it's really become kind of, uh, you know, the, the labor force just generally. 
you know, people have kind of, you know, uh, unplugged, so to speak, from uh, from from unions. So, yes, it becomes it's an influential player, but simply as far as just the ANC politics uh, are concerned. And what about uh, the economy and unemployment? Uh, that's something he's clearly going to have to speak about. He will absolutely have to speak about it. Um, as I said, I think I've said on the show before, people are losing jobs, uh, you know, in, in massive numbers. The it, It's really has to do with mostly the, the rolling blackouts that we've had. Um, you know, uh, companies are unable to hire. They're unable to really keep the lights on. I mean, one of our biggest retailers was really t- telling us how much it spends, um, you know, a day, uh, quite a significant amount. It spends a day on, on diesel just to keep, uh, you know, its, its retail stores open uh, for, you know, throughout the day so that I'm able to go and buy bread, you know, and, 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 and I'm not dictated to by the schedule of ESCOM and whether or not, it, you know, when it's off. So so the fact that you, the, they were talking about it in the letter that I mentioned earlier, they were talking about the fact that, you know, the input costs of actually just, you know, trading uh, are rising. And so what that means, obviously, is the ripple effect is that, the, you know, uh, food prices are going to rise. There's a whole lot of issues with regards to food security. Uh, just our treasury uh, was warning and saying, if we don't fix this whole matter of, of rolling blackouts, we may see, uh, you know, uprising just in generally in, in South Africa. And of course, unemployment directly affects crime. Now, that's something that's going to come up. It has come up. Um, it, 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 it has to come up in his speech. It is really one of the biggest thorns, uh, you know, that we're dealing with in South Africa. I mean, um, it, it, South Africa is not a safe place. It's, again, one of the things that was said by, in that letter by the CEO saying, you know, that uh, we, we need to be able to address policing. Our police force is simply unable to uh, uh, to manage the crime situation. It is a crisis point. Um, it's simply unable to manage the crime situation in South Africa. So he has to essentially consider, not only with his sona, but he actually has to consider whether the minister of police uh, uh, that we have at the moment, Bekikrele, is essentially the right man for the job. Many people arguing that absolutely he's not. Um, but he Bekikrele is a, a strong political ally of President Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, and so Ramaphosa has placed confidence in him and has publicly declared his confidence in him. However, we are seeing the crime situation really spiraling out of control. No community is safe in South Africa. No business is safe in South Africa. And, and that's really something that the president will have to uh, strongly consider. Do you think there'll be disruptions to the speech today, as there have been at every Sona for a decade? There may be. Um, uh, disruptions are always from the you know one grouping, which is the EFF. Um, they've, you know, over the years said they won't allow him to speak in parliament. But to be honest, those kinds of disruptions, uh, you know, they only they, they normally happen. They haven't indicated this year that they will happen, but they normally happen within the first sort of few minutes of the of the sonar. Um, and really what happens is that the, those MPs get then chucked out of parliament and the business of the day continues. Now, Ramaphosa is, of course, facing his own scandal about the foreign exchange found stuffed down the back of his sofa. But there are bigger, more significant questions to be answered about the South African Tourism Board and the huge amount of money spent on the sponsorship of a British football club. What are the details on that? What a mess. So the South African Tourism, the agency essentially was planning this deal uh, with Tottenham Hotspur and um, and it was to really sponsor them about a, a, what in our currency would be a billion rand uh, a year, essentially trying to, you know, get tourists. So it's really about, you know, advertising brand South Africa. And of course, the whole plan was leaked and questions were asked in the media about it. Um, and, and when the agency's executive, you know, held its first press conference, they were seething, seething one at the 
very fact that this this whole deal was leaked two saying that it had not been completed three really justifying the amount of money that was spent because remember many south africans were asking how can we spend a billion rand a year on trying to advertise a country that has so many problems you know what are we exactly what you know are we saying to this uh, uh supposed tourist and um and and of course you know the, there was a lot of there was a ripple effect as far as that is concerned parliament got involved i think two days ago the Minister of, of Tourism, as well as uh, the Tourism Agency, appeared before Parliament. Um, the deal essentially is, is really going to be shelved because, one, South Africans are saying we don't have this kind of money, although, yes, there is a budget as far as the tourism budget is concerned, but the timing of it is really right, is not wrong, sorry, is wrong considering everything else that is essentially happening. And two, there was uh, there's just no transparency. I mean, it, it turned out that the CF of the tourism agency had links to the company that really was you know was getting us this deal so there was some dodginess essentially happening there it's unlikely that it's going to happen the president himself has said that he doesn't see the point of this deal but somebody actually needs to make a final decision and call and pull the plug on it Nobisa, as a zimbabwean this all feels horribly familiar has south africa reached the point of no return is it destined like its neighbor to the north to become another failed state to be honest, I don't think so. I I, I think that um, if we've reached a point, it's really a point where South Africans are saying, okay, we need to fight now. We've let so much, uh, you know, power onto the government. We've let them do essentially as you know as they please. But there are there are strong calls, um, you know, uh, for uh, you know, let's sit around a table and figure out as South Africans, you know, what it is that we're going to do. And I think we've we've reached many points, uh, you know, where it looks like we are absolutely about to break. But I think really the people of South Africa are able to, at some point, you know, kind of say, let's let's put a stop on it, you know, onto it. Whether it's a change of government, whether it's really putting some pressure on a you know current government to do the right thing or to change course, um, I don't believe. At least I would like to know to believe that we we are not at the point of no return. Nwabisa Makunga, thank you very much indeed. Still to come on the program. Yesterday. Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down over Ukraine near the Russian border. Nearly 300 innocent lives were taken, who had nothing to do with the crisis in Ukraine. And that was uh, Obama speaking nine years ago after MH17 was struck down. We'll have the latest on the investigation and other top stories from the world of aviation. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. (laughs) 
After months of investigations into alleged corruption in the planning and sponsorship of the 2021 Olympic Games in Tokyo, yesterday Japanese prosecutors arrested a former Tokyo Olympics organising committee official and executives at three advertising agencies on suspected bid rigging of test events for the Games. Well, I'm joined now by Fiona Wilson, who's Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief. Fiona, who's been arrested? What are they accused of? Well, Georgina, this is such a complicated story. And as you say, months of investigation have gone into reaching this particular point. So, yeah, four people were arrested yesterday. One of them was Yasuo Mori, who was actually he was deputy executive director of the uh, Olympic Committee's Operations Bureau. So very senior in organising the Olympics. Also, the other name that's really um, raising uh, flags here is uh, Koji Henmi, who was the deputy director of Dentsu Sports Division. Now, Dentsu is the biggest ad agency in Japan, and theirs is the name that's really being uh, dragged through the mud here. So what it seems is that's gone on, That's this is what prosecutors believe, that Yasuo Mori and Dentsu officials rigged uh, the bids that led to these test events. Now, they themselves... It doesn't seem such a huge amount of money. It was uh, events basically to see test security, crowd control. But what then emerged is those companies, it seems, then got much bigger contracts. And the question is, did Dentsu really uh, effectively draw up the list to see who was going to get the uh, the test events, which would then lead to the big prize of the uh, the connected to running the Olympic Games itself? So there was there was also a bribery there was also a bribery scandal connected to the games uncovered last August. Is there going to be a big investigation of all aspects of this? Yeah, well, the two are connected. I mean, the thing that that emerged, you know, the, the thing about the we, we saw yesterday, this, this, these arrests, they came out during the investigation into bribery. That's a sort of a separate story, but kind of connected. You really have to be following this pretty closely. What happened there was that Haruyuki Takahashi, also on the Olympic uh, Organising Committee, uh, had been taking bribes. And this was relating to sponsorship of the game. So he's accused of taking money from companies like, this is a suit company, Aoki, Kadokawa Publishing, ADK, another ad, ad agency. These were people who wanted to have their name in lights for the sponsorship of the games. And Mr. Takahashi was taking bribes. Now that trial, it's several trials, but the first one started, the first hearing was in December when, you know, Mr. Aoki, he admitted that he had bribed uh, Mr. Takahashi. So that story is ongoing. But this other story has emerged. And I think what the the next stage we will probably see is the bigger prize. Investigators are now looking into, you know, we're talking about, you know, 40 billion yens worth of contracts, which is, you know, over $300 million, whether these were also rigged. So as you can see, it's a really difficult case, very, very complicated. And they've had to unpick it bit by bit. But uh, yeah, they're, they're doing it very forensically. So this is just the uh, the latest uh, salvo. Uh, and finally, Fiona, Japan is planning to bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics. Will those that still go ahead? Well, that's an interesting one. So Sapporo was the favourite for the 2030 Winter Olympics. I'm not sure how many cities really want to hold the Olympics these days, but uh, Salt Lake City was also in the running, but Sapporo was the front runner. They decided in December to suspend promotion of that bid uh, they 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 realise that the Japanese public is in no mood <laughs> to support an Olympic bid at the moment, particularly while this scandal's unfolding. And really, it's been in the paper 
most day last year it was repeatedly in the paper moving into this year we're now seeing these arrests the trials are going on and it looks like more and more people are going to uh, plead guilty so i think it's not the moment for sapporo but uh, at the moment the the mayor of sapporo looking rather beleaguered has said he will stop promotional activities Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That's our Fiona Wilson there in Tokyo. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverley says he's working with the UN's senior humanitarian official to find ways of getting aid into northwest Syria. The earthquakes have made the humanitarian crisis in the region even worse. At least 15,000 people have died in Turkey and Syria following the quakes. North Korea has showcased its biggest display of long-range missiles during a ceremony to mark the 75th anniversary of its army. Leader Kim Jong-un presided over the nighttime parade, joined by his wife and daughter. State media said the event featured a variety of nuclear-capable weapons. The Australian government will remove Chinese-made surveillance cameras from defence sites over concerns the devices are a national security threat. The UK and US made similar moves last year, citing fears the device data may be accessed by the Chinese government. And Walt Disney has announced it's cutting 7,000 staff as part of a restructuring plan. The company's been losing money on its streaming services and the cuts are part of a plan to save more than $5 billion. Disney CEO Bob Iger says the cuts are part of what he called a significant transformation. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. In Zurich, an alternative school is set to open its doors next summer. The private gymnasium appears to be run by corona sceptics and will offer education without ideology. That's in quote marks. Joining me now from Monocle Studio in Zurich is Florian Egli, who's a senior associate at Furhaus, the Swiss foreign policy think tank. Uh, Florian, welcome back to the programme. Can you tell us about this new school? What is a values-free education? Good morning, Georgina. Um, so it's not yet clear, you know, whether it will really open, whether enough um, students will sign up, because the or part, at least, of the group that is um, opening this school has tried before, has tried before opening up a similar school and has not succeeded because there were not enough subscriptions. So let's see how it turns out this time. Um, what's interesting to know is that it is basically a school that is equivalent to a high school, um, but it is a school that offers this high school path after um, the end of the official schooling, so after the official nine years of schooling. And that's why it doesn't need an official um, permit, so there is no you know, centralized system for this. You can basically open such a school in Switzerland, call it whatever you want to call it, and offer the types of um, lectures or, or, or classes you want to offer. So it's really quite liberal in that sense after the nine years of compulsory schooling. I mean, there does seem to be a bit of a contradiction in that students will be encouraged to develop freely by exhibiting uh, a wide diversity of opinions, but the school also proposes to approach history, society and politics in a in a critical way. I, I wonder what that just actually means. Look, I mean, we'd have to see. I think some, some, of, these, some of these people have made themselves a name um, with quite obscure um, commentaries during um, the corona crisis um, that, you know, compared compared the um, responses of the Swiss government government to a dictatorship and, um, you know, we're, um, we're, we're, we're proposing that uh, official, like, you know, 
public demonstrations were not allowed anymore and so that the whole system would crumble if only people woke up so we're really in this in this uh, in this conspiracy field um, but then at the same time there are some aspects of this school um, which seem quite reasonable you know it's it's a it's a no digital tools school which I found interesting so it's basically all um, all analog um, it costs 20k per year it's three years um, and after that you basically have to take the Swiss um, official um, high school diploma, um, which is, you know, much more difficult than what other schools have. So we have basically a system where officially recognized high schools, they can offer their own diploma. So you can basically um, study there and you get the official degree to go to university afterwards mm -hmm. and not recognize school like this one. You have to do the official Swiss one, which everybody, you know, also without going to school, you can take the exam. So this exam is quite tough and we'll see if any of those students actually make it right. So it's kind of this this is the this is the watermark right so we'll we'll only know um, 3 years from now if it's really you know a crazy school where nobody will actually afterwards make it or if you know they also teach some sensible things well values free it might be cost free it clearly isn't i wonder just before you go about uniform clearly they won't be wearing masks will they in fact be wearing tinfoil helmets <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the uniform design. You know, maybe there is going to be an official tender um, for the for the design of the uniforms, and we'll see what they come up with. I mean, it's in Winterthur. It's only a 10-minute train ride from here. We might go have a look. Absolutely, Florian. It's a date next time I'm in Zurich. That's, <laughs> that's Florian Egli of Fur House in Zurich, and this is the Globalist on Monocle 24. It's 8.36 in Zurich, that's 7.36 here in London, and we're going to have a ruffle through some of the day's newspapers with Terry Stiastany, who's the political journalist and author. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Uh, now, Ukraine, obviously, this is dominating all of the UK and indeed most of the European papers. Uh, there's an interview in Le Figaro. Yes, that's right. I mean, if you look around at the British papers, most of them... Uh, Vladimir Zelensky gave everybody really a sort of a free headline this morning, which is Wings for Freedom. So lots of the papers have got big pictures of, of him addressing uh, the Houses of Parliament in Westminster Hall, doing the sort of the V sign for victory. Um, but Le Figaro has uh, an exclusive interview uh, with the Ukrainian president. Uh, not sure whether this was done uh, in Paris or uh, uh, in Kiev it was done. Um, but the interesting thing, I think, here to pick out is some of his uh, attitudes towards uh, the European leaders and he is asked about uh, firstly his relationship with uh, Emmanuel Macron and he's you know said he's often you know, said things that have, have bothered Ukraine and says do you think this is still the case or do you think he's changed and uh, Zelensky says I think he's changed and that he has changed uh, for good this time he says he's very grateful to him for um, talking about the, the tanks he's opened the door to the delivery of tanks he's supported uh, Ukraine in the EU and thinks this is a a real signal um, and he also sort of picks up on uh, what he calls the historic relationship between France and Russia and, and saying that he understands that there are these close links between France and, and Russia going back to Russians who emigrated in, in 1917 after the revolution and, and went to France and, uh, and, and lived there. 
Um, and he's also talking about uh, his relationship with the German leaders. And again, Zelensky says, uh, we've had different phases in this relationship with Germany. I'm not going to hide from you that it was difficult at the beginning. Uh, I think German reluctance is to do with the historical conservatism. And it says that some leaders are, are more slow to react and they slow down their bureaucracy. And he, uh, Zelensky says there's two solutions with bureaucracy. Either you control it or it controls you. And he's saying how, how fast he's had to work work over the last year. There aren't any 60 seconds in a minute anymore. Every second represents somebody's life and somebody's destiny. Mm. I was very struck by the theatricality of the speech, the way he kept saying thank you, which of course is a natural applause moment. So it kept being uh, interrupted by all all this applause. And of course, big applause for Boris Johnson, who now is Mm. just the backbench MP, the member for Uxbridge, possibly not for much longer. Um, But there's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful cartoon in the Times with with um, uh, Johnson and Sunak both carrying huge shields with pictures of Zelensky on it going, Oi, he was my human shield first. <laughs> yes, I, mean, I think the, the theatricality of it, as you say, was absolutely amazing. I was watching these images of Westminster Hall, which is, of course, this sort of thousand-year-old building, uh, a bit of the Houses of Parliament in Westminster that survived bombings, that has survived everything. And Zelensky there making the speech and doing these big showy moments, for instance, when he gave uh, a helmet uh, to the Speaker of the House of Commons with this, you know, this wings for freedom uh, remark on it. So you could see this as someone who, you know, has an acting background mm. as a trainer. He knows how to how to play a moment. And yeah, it was interesting watching that sort of the reactions from from Boris Johnson, the cutaways where you saw saw him there. Um, and yeah, for Rishi Sunak, you know, this does well. This distracts from his own um, sort of political difficulties at home. He gets to say, you know, to welcome Zelensky to London and to to go then down to the military base where um, Ukrainian soldiers are being are being trained in Britain. So, yes, it is helpful for them. But, you know, it's when it comes down to the detail that things get uh, more tricky. Mm. Now, Zelensky shares the front pages today with the Turkey and Syria earthquake. Uh, and the FT has a very good piece here on the political impact. Yes, uh, this is this is really interesting. This is obviously looking, of course, at uh, the Turkish uh, side of the story and then the issues in, in Syria are, of course, um, uh, different. Um, but uh, President Erdogan uh, visited one of the cities which was affected by the earthquake uh, yesterday Uh, and just interesting here the FT is picking up on what this might mean for Turkish elections in May Uh, the president there saying I don't want you to give the provocateurs an opportunity he said as he toured the region the media shouldn't give them an opportunity now is the time for unity and for solidarity Um, but of course his uh, political opponents are saying that come the election they are hoping that you know criticism about uh, sort of the infrastructure in Turkey I suppose it's saying the popul- his popularity was sagging even before the disaster struck because of the cost of living crisis and, and different views in this article from analysts looking at you know how this might affect politics in Turkey. Um, one person here from the Eurasia group saying the Turkish government response has actually been quite quick uh, to the earthquake and he uh, he could benefit from that. But then other people saying, well, people are miserable and they tend to vote for change when they're miserable, partly because of, you know, and also the logistical problems of running an election where things are heavily damaged. Um, and But also possibly the risk that Erdogan might try and postpone the elections and say, well, look, we've got a state of emergency, we've got a disaster and, you know, the, the now, is, now is not really the time and be, be some concerns about 
about uh, this idea of a state of emergency and emergency rule. Now, you were actually in Turkey when there was an earthquake. Yes, I was there in uh, for the 90, to cover the 1999 earthquake, and that had huge consequences. I mean, obviously, it was it was much closer to Istanbul, not as difficult a region to get to, and so you, know, you could travel outside of Istanbul a couple of hours, and just the devastation, just things like. Um, the buildings which had collapsed because they hadn't been properly built. And I just remember seeing concrete that had bits of shells in it, seashells, because people had dredged up sand that they shouldn't have been using to build, you know, to build these buildings, which then collapsed. And just people having to live out in the open because they were so worried about aftershocks. And again, you see all of these things happening again. And, uh, you know, people really did start to worry then about, you know, how literally how have things been built in their country and, and what does that mean about their, their safety? Absolutely. Finally, let's talk about tipping, particularly in America. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who just wants a bill. It doesn't matter if it's got a huge tip inbuilt into it. I just want to be told <laughs> what it is I owe you. Uh, this is all changing now in America. Yes, I mean, I think always in New York there has been, you know, you have to tip more than you do uh, in, in the UK and you know, people got that expectation because they're saying, well, people aren't, you know, they're not getting paid that much. You, you know, people, you deserve uh, to tip, you know, Apparently, up to now, 20 to 25 percent in restaurants. There's this is a report in the Times saying there's been a new uh, article published in New York Magazine suggesting, uh, that, but it was also saying that you should now tip in a coffee shop, at a coffee cart, and a grocery store. Um, so if your order is only coffee, you may tip one dollar. Um, but they're saying people are suggesting that even in places where you're not really dealing with a person that you should still be tipping and this has caused controversy among uh, New York etiquette experts who are who are disagreeing about this but I noticed when I went to New York a few months ago and in the airport there were checkouts which were unmanned checkout so like a supermarket checkout where you just put your things in and pay for it and there it was asking you did you want to leave a tip it's like no, I'm not leaving a tip for a computer. Like, why? Why would I? I've not even said hello to a person in this shop. It does seem to be uh, excessive. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are people who are stuck in the shelves and so on. But but isn't the argument then that that people should just be paid more? Well, yes, I think that that is the the obvious argument, and it's always been the idea that yes, you should have to help to make up people's salaries and reward them for for good service. But and and obviously there are probably fewer jobs now because you know automatic checkouts and and online is, is taking some of some of that money. But they're suggesting that even if you pick up a, a takeaway now, you should sort of compensate people for the time that it takes to to hand hand you over your takeaway. Which I think there might be a bit of a, a backlash against this. Totally, Terry Stiasny, thank you very much. And if you don't mind, you'll. It will be in coffee. <laughs> Thank okay. you. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Fifteen minutes before the top of the hour, and it's time now for a roundup of the biggest stories from the world of aviation. Murdo Morrison is the head of strategic content at Flight Global, and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Murdo. Good morning. Uh, now, this big story that's coming from the world of aviation is, of course, uh, about the missile that downed flight MH17 in 2014. Dutch investigators uh, have some more information. What can you tell us about this story? Well, the Dutch investigators have concluded that uh, that Vladimir Putin might have 
has well, there's a very good case that he, he personally ordered the downing uh, of the or made it possible for the aircraft to be down by by personally approving the supply of these book surface to air missiles that were fired from um from Russian separatist controlled territory within Ukraine. Now, a Dutch court uh, late last year has had already um, issued in absentia uh, life sentences to, to three men accused of um, firing that missile and, and, and downing the, uh, the, the, the airliner, the Malaysia airliner uh, 777-200ER. Uh, on, on of which were the 298 passengers and crew on board. So an absolute tragedy. These people were just overflying the territory of U Ukraine. Their aircraft exploded. So a real tragic story. Um, you know the 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 the. the the finger has always been pointed at the Russian state uh, for this uh, Russian separatist, but uh, obviously uh, enabled by the the Russian state. So this is just really another um, another another sort of step in that process. Mm. I mean, we always knew that book missiles had been fired, but I mean, what they seem to have found out is that they've got direct uh, evidence now of close contact with Kremlin advisors uh, and and uh, concrete information that the request from the separatists to fire on 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 this plane was presented to the president. So obviously there was a, a positive response to it. So this is why they're directly blaming Putin. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I know, I, you know, I don't think anyone is suggesting that they, 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 they wanted to down a Malaysia Airlines uh, aircraft, but they, they obviously mistook it for a, a Russian a Ukrainian transport aircraft. Uh, I mean, it was at best, you know, <laughs> carelessness and uh, you know it was ju it's just it just should never have happened uh and uh yes as you say the uh the development here is that it looks very very likely that the order came from uh, the the very top to at least make this make it possible that this happened. Mm. Now, uh, the papers everywhere are full of this promise of flighter jet training for Ukraine. That's the training and not the actual jets. Do you think Ukraine will get both? Yeah, this is a very, very difficult one because um, for for all sorts of reasons, and we could we could be talking about this for for a long time. But uh, you know, a lot of NATO countries, including Germany, uh, have been very reluctant to supply aircraft to Ukraine because it takes the conflict to you know to an entirely new level. It would be fantastic for Ukraine, of course, because it uh, fighter jets uh, they, they 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 inherited about. 90-something uh, Soviet-era MiGs and Sukhois uh, at the time of independence. Um, but, you know, it's not quite clear how many of these aircraft are still operational. Uh, so Ukraine now has very, very little air power. That is, that you know, it would be transformative for Ukraine because they'd be able to um, attack Russian uh, missile systems, you know, be behind the lines, um, but it, 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 NATO have been very NATO and NATO members have been very wary about supplying fighter jets because it's just um, uh, you know it takes it takes the conflict to a to a whole new level. But there are also practical challenges with this, and and this is you know one thing about this the, the promise of, of fighter training. I mean, what are, what are you going to what are you going to train them on? Uh, NATO use at least five different types of 
European and US built fighters, the, the Rafale, the Typhoon, the, uh, the the Gripen, which is made in Sweden, the F-16, which is a, a US aircraft, the F-35. So I'm not quite sure how this will work in practice, even if uh, NATO and NATO members were, were minded to supply aircraft down the line. Mm. Now, Mitsubishi has put billions of dollars in investment in an attempt to enter the airliner market. Uh, They're pulling out. Why? They're pulling out. I mean, this is no great surprise. The the project has been on ice effectively since 2020. Uh, This goes back to, to 2008 and Japanese company Mitsubishi Heavy Industries uh, decided that the Japanese government backing as well decided to uh, to enter the airliner market. Uh, the Japanese companies had not built an airliner since the 1960s, um, but it, it just shows the extremely high barriers to entry that there are in this market. It's it's dominated, of course, by uh, by Boeing and Airbus. Uh, Embraer from Brazil are a sort of third player. They make regional jets, jets of up to kind of 90 seats. Uh, but but there, there's really no one else in this market. Bombardier, Canadian company, pretty much pulled out of this market several years ago when they, they sold their program to Airbus. So um, Mitsubishi uh, were very ambitious. They thought they could, uh, they thought there was room in this market for a, for a sort of new disruptive player. Uh, they've spent billions, as you say, on this on this project, but uh, have now formally accepted that uh, the uh, space jet, as it's called, it was going to be a 90 seater and a and a 70 seat uh, versions are not so much now on ice, but formally uh, cancelled. And finally, Murdo, very quickly, let's have a look at the fact that some slots have uh, been made available at Heathrow after the collapse of Flybe. And there's a bit of a row over who should get them. Yes, there are. This is this is a very controversial one. It's it's very hard to explain very very quickly. But the con- the, the the argument is really over whether these slots should just go on the open market to I don't know to a Lufthansa or an Air France or some other carrier who wants these uh, slots, or whether they should be used to preserve connectivity within the UK. And a regional airline, Logan Air, is very keen to get these slots because it wants to uh, connect small UK cities like Dundee or uh, Derry, Londonderry, into Heathrow, uh, allowing communities in these in these cities to get access to global networks. And they argue that it should, you know, it's all fits in with the government's levelling up strategy uh, to improve connectivity to the to the regions. I mean, Heathrow is great. If you if you live within reach of Heathrow, uh, you can get anywhere in the world. But if you live in, in some of the um, cities in in parts of the uk that sort of connectivity is much much harder to uh, you know to get to hong kong to get to new york is much much harder absolutely murdo thank you very much indeed that was flight globals murdo morrison and you're with the globalist on monocle 24 And finally on today's show, in the middle of bustling London, a new exhibition is creating a pocket of calm. Oliver Beer's Albion Waves suspends various vessels and pots from the ceiling of London's Mithraeum. Each holds a microphone and as visitors walk around the space, the hidden voices of the objects begin to sound. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs was guided around the space by Oliver ahead of the exhibition's opening. 
let's look at these ones. These are the Roman ones, the oldest in the installation. And we're actually on the site of a Roman temple that was in London in the second century AD. And this is why I started with these vessels, because they're as old as the site. And they're actually dug up in Kent, which is where I'm originally from. This one over here is a really kind of traditional looking British spirit jar of putting alcohol in. But the cool thing about it is that it was made in a factory where Charles Dickens had to spend his youth stamping stickers onto these pots because his dad was in jail for debt. And he didn't talk about it much, but there are thousands of these in the world that he may have stamped. This, this could be one of them. Um, this one is the Loving Cup, which is the celebration of the coronation of the Queen's dad. And they made a kind of special ceramic limited edition thing to commemorate it. And it's a lovely piece of kind of imperial propaganda hanging in the midst of all this very kind of diverse British objects. And for example, the two of the most contemporary ones are this beautiful piece by Freya Bramble Carter and actually her father, Chris Bramble who are amazing contemporary black British ceramicists working in London and working in the same studio. And this lovely piece down here by Edmund Duval, who's a ceramicist and author. So you can see that it's like the most diverse possible cross-section of, of British objects going back centuries. Amazing. And as you walk underneath them, you get this amazing experience of sound. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so this is just a very simple but beautiful phenomenon where every vessel in the whole world has got a musical note inside it. You know, just like a wine glass can be made to sing or when you listen to a seashell, which makes a sound and yet it's completely inanimate, a vessel is exactly the same. And I've just found a way of listening and amplifying those notes inside the empty forms of these vessels. You can see there's like a microphone inside each one. When you walk underneath it, there's a movement sensor that just turns on the microphone and that means that we hear that resonant note in real time and we can walk around the room and play these crazy vessels as our movements uh, determine the music. And you've also got some paintings as well as part of this exhibition. How do they relate to the work in your mind? So these are called resonance paintings and I know they kind of look like very abstract painted, uh, painterly objects, but actually I've made them by using sound as my paintbrush, if that makes sense. I lay the canvas horizontally and I put a speaker under the canvas and I put like the finest possible pigment on the surface of the canvas so that when I play the sound, the sound of these vessels through the speaker, the speaker vibrates and it moves the air and the air moves the pigment and the pigment takes on the shape of the sound. And if you could see the, the air moving as, as these pots resonate around us, you'd see these incredible, beautiful ripples of geometry that come out. That's what sound is. It's these geometric waves just like on the surface of a pond when you throw in a stone and you see those concentric circles. So these paintings are, are literally paintings that I've made with sound without ever touching the, the canvas. And so it's this way of actually both making a, a painting that, that sits within the history of abstraction. You know, it's amazing how quickly they start to look like an acoustic Rothko or an acoustic Frank Stella or an acoustic Agnes Martin. And yet they are literally a kind of translation of the sound that we're hearing in the room onto the walls of the gallery. And what is it about that sweet spot between music and fine art that's really fascinated you and led to all of this exploration of the different ways that you can present that? Yeah, I don't know. I've always been working at this meeting point of music and art. And ever since I was a kid, I had this sensitivity to music, even though I was always making art. I studied music and then I studied art and I studied cinema. And they all kind of come together where the meeting point of visual art and music is such a amazingly natural and fruitful place to work. I think it's a very arbitrary distinction that we make in the 21st century between disciplines. 
right now I'm shooting a video opera in the caves of South France, the famous painted ones. And I've discovered a relationship between the paintings and the resonant notes of the cave, which shows that even like 20,000 years ago, people were linking music and visual art in, in that way. So it's a kind of very natural place to be, I think. And just finally, for those who come and experience this exhibition, the pots are all suspended from the ceiling and there's this wonderful sound as, as you walk around and it feels very peaceful, yet we're right in the middle of the centre of commuting London. How do you want people to kind of experience the space and, and feel when they're in it? Well, you can see it's like bathed in blue light and I've put a blue film over the windows so that when you come in, you are kind of like in this other world. And I hope that whilst they'll be drawn to these amazingly eccentric and unique objects that you can come right up to and hear and enjoy the phenomenon of hearing them and of course like seeing the sound of them in the paintings on the walls as well hopefully they'll be able to just bathe in the endorphins of all of these resonances going back you know 2000 years Oliver Beer there speaking to Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Albion Waves is open from today at London Mithraeum Bloomberg space and that's all for today's programme Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Pemintuin. Our studio manager today was Adam Heaton, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be with you uh, all morning, uh, bringing you sharp programming and some of our global playlist. And the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be back on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.